Hello, and welcome to A History of Japan. Season 8, Episode 17, The Onin War, Part 2, The Fire Spreads. The defection of Ashikaga Yoshimi was one of the most shocking events of the Onin War, especially given that the leader of his new faction, Yamana Sozen, originally favored the elevation of Yoshihisa. The reversal of both Yoshimi's loyalty and the preferred candidate of Yamana Sozen proved that this war was much bigger than a simple succession dispute. As for Yoshimi himself, understanding his position becomes much easier with the addition of a few details. The unpopular official I mentioned in the previous episode whom Yoshimasa was attempting to reinstall was one Ise Sadachika, and he had been serving at the head of the Mandokoro, the executive council. However, he had been attempting to reassert the shogunate's right to decide clan successions, and this had been causing problems. After much uproar, Yoshimasa caved to pressure from the other shugo daimyo and had Sadachika dismissed. Yoshimi disliked Sadachika, but that had more to do with Sadachika accusing him of plotting against his brother. For Yoshimasa to ask him to return was seen by Yoshimi as a slap in the face. This was hardly the only incident with Yoshimasa's brother and erstwhile successor, however. In truth, Yoshimi felt almost ignored by the Kyoto Kanrei Hosokawa Katsumoto and his brother Yoshimasa in the Onin War's opening phases, which is why he probably had almost no qualms about eventually joining with Yamana Sozen instead. Yoshimasa was, of course, absolutely livid at his brother's betrayal, and he requested that the emperor divest Yoshimi of the many court-rank promotions and office appointments which the Bakufu had arranged he receive in the first place. While this may seem like decisive action from a fairly indecisive shogun, it was absolutely too little too late. At this point, Yamana Sozen appeared to have the advantage, and if he could manage to defeat the Hosokawa, Yoshimi might still sit on the shogunal throne and Yoshimasa could find himself sent into exile if he was lucky. While the urban setting of the Onin War at first hindered the usual samurai fighting styles of mounted archery, the armies who bloodied one another in the streets of Heian-kyo soon adapted to a different kind of warfare. The narrow streets made for poor avenues for bands of horsemen, so dismounted combat became common. Large shields were often carried by companies of foot soldiers to protect them from missile attacks, and many of those foot soldiers were not actually official samurai. In many battles and wars which we have already covered in this podcast, irregular troops have played a part. Usually that part was minor or unclear, which is why it has not come up. The Onin War, however, gave these unofficial troops an opportunity to bring new tactics and skills to the battlefield, which would change Japanese warfare forever. This new kind of warrior was called the Ashigaru, or foot soldier. While the samurai hailed from families with impressive pedigrees, the Ashigaru were commoners. The samurai generally carried many weapons, like swords and bows and daggers, into battle so that they could fight in any circumstance that might emerge. 
The Ashigaru generally carried only one weapon, usually a sword or a polearm. The samurai was covered in the Oyoroi armor, which protected his entire body. The Ashigaru was adorned with whatever protection they managed to find, usually looted from dead bodies. Exactly what the Ashigaru had done before becoming foot soldiers is not generally known, and it is likely that their group had multiple points of origin. Some were probably discontented tenant farmers who had absconded from their plots. Some may have been recruited by a samurai overlord who needed to bring a certain number of warriors and came up short. Their reputation, especially during the Onin War, was one of a destructive, lawless group of fighters who would just as soon burn a scenic temple to the ground as look at it. Their fighting style was also contrasted with the samurai who commanded them. While the samurai would usually announce their name and pedigree before engaging in single combat with a foe of equal or near-equal background, the Ashigaru were known for their stealthy nighttime activities. They would sneak into an enemy encampment and seize prisoners, or set fire to enemy battlements or other structures within their camp. There was a respected Kuge scholar named Ichijo Kaneyoshi who wrote about his experience during the Onin War. He had fled the city when the fighting broke out, taking shelter in Nara while the Hosokawa and Yamana burned and looted the city. Long after the war was done, in a treatise on the principles of government, he recommended abolishing the use of Ashigaru, calling them excessively dangerous rascals. Regardless of anyone's distaste for their fighting style, the Ashigaru were here to stay. Both sides employed them in large numbers throughout the Onin War, and the armies of the Sengoku period thereafter would nearly always include Ashigaru, sometimes as their army's core component. In 1469, the Onin War had taken a new turn as Ashikaga Yoshimi joined the side of Yamana Sozen and the fighting continued. Now stripped of any alternative, Yoshimasa officially named his infant son Yoshihisa as his successor. Likewise, he finally lobbied the Tenno, Emperor Go Tsuchimikado, for a Rinji officially declaring that Yoshimi and Yamana Sozen were rebels. The sovereign, obviously, agreed. It may surprise you to learn that the official declaration from the Tenno that one faction in this war was nothing more than a band of rebels did not result in the end of the conflict. If the Yamana had managed to gain a victory, however, they could have arranged for the official order to be reversed. Bad advisors would be blamed, the emperor would be held above reproach, and the new shogun Ashikaga Yoshimi would have the perpetrators punished. However, that is not what happened. In 1472, the situation in provinces governed by various generals fighting on behalf of the Hosokawa and Yamana respectively became dire. Those generals departed late into that year and put down those rebellions and usurpations, returning in early 1473 to continue pursuing the war that was devastating the capital. The fighting continued in fits and starts with neither side willing to take a bold initiative in an attack nor able to lure their enemies into traps. Both Yamana Sozen and Hosokawa Katsumoto were growing weary of the war and desired peace. In April 1473, however, Yamana Sozen died. Less than two months later, 
Hosokawa Katsumoto died. The two leaders who had ignited this terrible war which had already left the capital in ruins and depopulated the city were now gone. The war which they had begun raged on. To refresh, the Eastern Army is the name ascribed to the Hosokawa forces, and the Western Army was given to Yamana troops. This refers solely to their positions in the capital and not to the provinces they controlled. After the deaths of the primary belligerents, new commanders rose to take their place. Among the Yamana partisans, Ochi Masahiro rose as the new leader, and among the Hosokawa troops, Hatakeyama Masanaga became the new leader. Both sides were, however, deeply demoralized by the deaths of their former leaders, and the number of warriors in Heian-kyo was noticeably reduced as some of the vassals departed for their home provinces to protect their holdings from incursion. However, the two sides were still roughly equal, and the situation continued much as it had before. Ashikaga Yoshimasa, to his credit, attempted to seize the initiative and sent an order to every province instructing its shugo to keep the peace. It seems likely he wanted to assure the men fighting for the Western Army that they could return to their homes without harassment or fear of land seizure. Ochi Masahiro proved an obstinate foe, however, as he refused to remove his troops until the question of succession had been decided between Yoshimi and Yoshihiro to his satisfaction. This seems to have been a pretense on Masahiro's part, however, because in 1471, Yoshimasa retired, and his nine-year-old son Yoshihisa was installed as the new shogun, and yet the Ochi and Yamana allied troops remained in the capital. No such engagement could last forever, though, and being labeled as rebels eventually sapped the fortitude of the Yamana and Ochi allied warriors. Gradually, the commanders of the Western Army submitted to the shogun, apologized for their behavior, and departed the battlefield. The only remaining commander was Ochi Masahiro himself, and he finally swallowed his pride and submitted to young Yoshihisa on December 17, 1477. Yamana-allied samurai had already left the capital the night before. On his way out of town, troops commanded by Ochi Masahiro set fire to his own residence in the capital, as well as the Nijo Palace. This arson was attributed to his Ashigaru. After ten years of fires, street battles, wagons filled with severed heads, streets clogged with headless corpses, and a bakufu which had been completely demoralized, what did either side have to show for their struggles and sacrifices? Essentially, nothing. The Onin War belongs in the broader category of historical conflicts which doesn't have a winning side so much as it had a side that did not lose, and in which the victors were actually worse off after the conclusion than they were at its inception. Even in its day, the Onin War was seen by contemporaries as a futile waste of time, lives, and effort. At its conclusion, Yoshimasa's son Yoshihisa sat upon the shogunal throne, but now ruled over a capital in ruins as the head of a bankrupt government without resources to rebuild. As for Yoshimasa himself, history has not generally been kind. It is tempting to compare him to the mythical version of the Roman Emperor Nero, as he busied himself with poetry, partying, and aesthetic appreciation, while his city, the crown jewel of his nation, 
was unceremoniously burned to the ground. However, even George Sansom, who is not known for being generous in his assessments of feudal Japanese leaders, feels the need to give Yoshimasa the benefit of the doubt. Sansom points out that Yoshimasa came to the shogunal throne during a time in which the national unity was already deeply in peril, when Shugo daimyo were evolving into self-sufficient warlords who operated independently of the shogunate. This is certainly true. Yoshimasa's feeble efforts at reasserting the Bakufu's authority were often undercut by practical reality, and those officials like Issei Sadachika, who tried to plunge the shogunate back into the murky and unnatural realm of deciding clan successions, risked plunging the entire nation into a massive civil war which would have had a larger death toll than the War of Onin. Still, it is hard for me to think of Yoshimasa in an entirely favorable or exonerating light. His desire for both sides of the Onin War to come to an amicable agreement seemed like the notions of a child rather than the sober-minded shogun which the Bakufu needed. When he agreed to declare Yamana Sozen a rebel, he refused to go any further than a shogunal decree, when an imperial Rinji may have demoralized Yamana's samurai much sooner and thus shortened the conflict. For eleven years the capital had been used by rough warriors as a battlefield, and shortly into that conflict all the gains made by Yoshimitsu's reconstruction efforts were not just eliminated, but taken even further back than their condition prior to Yoshimitsu's time. And the fact that the war raged for four more long years after its principal actors had died speaks to a momentum which any competent bakufu and shogun would have found a way to stem much earlier. Still, Yoshimasa was not without his good qualities. After the Onin War, he was finally able to construct his Ginkakuji, or Silver Pavilion, and retire in style. He contributed to the formation of the Cha no Yu, or Tea Ceremony, and made great contributions to Japan's aesthetic traditions in his later years. We might assign some of the blame for the Onin War to his general indecisiveness and vacillating tendencies but even George Sansom admits that if Yoshimasa had been elevated to shogun during peaceful, harmonious times, he may have been remembered for leading an artistic renaissance rather than dragging the nation into ruin. As a great storm of blood, fire, and violence swept through the capital during the eleven years of the Onin War, several similar flames were ignited nationwide. Kanto was still in chaos. Chugoku was plagued by trickle-down feuds, and the greater Kansai area also witnessed a large amount of succession disputes, regional civil conflicts, and peasant risings. We briefly discussed the rise of peasant power in Episode 5, Revenues and Expenditures, and the years of Yoshimasa's reign were especially noteworthy for the boldness of the commoners. There was an underlying current behind some of the peasant discontent. While Zen had continued its role as the Buddhism of the elite, the Jodo Pure Land schools saw a massive influx of members in the years leading up to and including the Onin War. Pure Land became the preferred Buddhism of the poor and downtrodden, the common and insignificant. 
the temple of Hongganji in particular experienced a massive success in converting common believers, thanks in large part to their eighth head priest, Renyo. By Renyo's time, the Jodo Shinshu, or True Pure Land sect, had experienced splintering and dispersion since the time of its founder, Shinran, whom we discussed last season. However, these disparate communities still existed in various pockets throughout the nation and would prove a potent source of influence to anyone who could reunite them. Born into a long-standing family of priests, Renyo's father was the seventh head priest of the Jodo Shinshu sect. His mother was a servant who was sent away when Renyo was only six, and in spite of his best efforts, he never managed to relocate her in his life. When the time came for him to take his father's place in 1457, he threw himself into the role with gusto. He traveled and preached throughout Omi province in central Kansai and attracted many people to Jodo Shinshu who were some variety of artisan. These people could afford to give generous donations which allowed for more proselytizing efforts from the Hongganji temple. The areas where he preached were largely already Pure Land believers, but they belonged initially to a different branch. The Hongganji temple's influence became so significant during Renyo's time that Enryakuji took notice, and took action. The Solhei, or warrior monks, did not exist in the great numbers they boasted during the Genpei War, but they were still around. It had become a regular practice during the Muromachi period for them to raid competing temples and even burn down their shrines and religious buildings. You may remember that Yoshinori issued strict warnings to the temples to find more constructive ways to resolve their disputes, and while this may have calmed the violence for a time, the fighting and feuding had started back up as soon as he was gone. In 1465, Enryakuji sent a company of warrior monks against Hongganji, and they eagerly assaulted the resident monks and burned many of the temple buildings to ash. However, because Renyo had met such success in converting middle-class professionals, he soon received enough funding to offer a financial gift to Enryakuji to secure a peace treaty. It might seem strange that a temple could essentially be bribed into making peace, but money is most likely what this whole conflict was really about. Enryakuji was not an isolated temple, but the head of a network of Tendai temples, which received income in part from gifts given by adherents. Those adherents deciding to donate to the Joro Shinshu movement instead was cutting into Enryakuji's income, which is obviously not okay. In essence, Renyo had ignited a Buddhist turf war. The leaders of the temple atop Mount Hiei justified their attack by claiming that the Jodo Shinshu were heretics. They attempted to induce a promise of regular tribute from Renyo for which they offered peace. However, they also had one further condition. Hongganji Temple must accept Enryakuji's authority and become enfolded into their temple network. Renyo could not accept this, so for a time he was pursued by agents of Enryakuji as he went from place to place. Renyo deserves a lot of credit for preserving Shinran's teachings and even building upon the foundation laid down by the Jodo Shinshu founder. He wrote commentaries of Shinran's work, 
which helped to spread both his venerated founder's teachings alongside his own. By 1469, he had managed to unite many of the Jodo Shinshu communities of Kansai, and he traveled to Kanto to continue his work there. In 1471, he decided it was time to rebuild Honganji, but wanted to choose a location that was far away from the influence of Enryakuji. He chose the village of Yoshizaki, which lay on the border between Echizen and Kanga provinces along the northern coast of Chubu. Both Renyo and the following he inspired will play major roles in many civil and military conflicts which will erupt next season. While the Bakufu was already losing its grip on pretense of authority before the Yamana and Hosokawa clans decided to use the capital as their own personal decapitation and fire playground, the Onin War is usually considered a turning point in the Muromachi period. The shogun no longer ruled as the chief of all warriors. He was simply the head of another faction. While the Muromachi Bakufu had never enjoyed true governance over the whole of Japan, their authority was now limited far more than it ever had been before. Most of Kansai was still accessible in terms of appointing shugo and other regional offices, but during the decade of pointless civil strife which had distracted the central government from provincial needs, many of the regional powers in Japan had learned to fend for themselves. Large clans absorbed some smaller ones through vassalage, while other smaller clans banded together in rough confederations. And the Shugo Daimyo had even begun forging trade agreements and military alliances with one another without bothering to consult the Bakufu or even their local Bakufu-connected official. The natural disasters that occasionally swept through Japan had not been idle during the Onin War. Famines, epidemics, earthquakes, and tsunamis had left many of the common people in a state of acute desperation. Part of the reason why religious movements like the Jodo Shinshu found such fertile ground for proselytizing was because it offered the people a level of stability which the government had utterly failed to provide. These religious communities served as mutual aid groups wherein people could care for one another and provide for the common good as much as their resources allowed. While the Onin War ended in 1477, its aftershocks would be felt for more than a century. The capital, which had been so painstakingly rebuilt as a center of culture, art, and high-minded learning, was now a burned-out husk, which housed an indifferent government. And the regional Shugo Daimyo had, in general, now grown so strong that there would be no going back to the days of Yoshinori, when the shogun had the authority to interfere in clan affairs as he saw fit. And if the days of Yoshinori were gone, the days of Yoshimitsu were practically ancient myth. This did not mean that the shoguns of the age to come would not try. The regional Bakufu appointments would still be utilized in an attempt to rebuild the national network of political power through sheer refusal to quit. The shogunate would attempt to recruit some of the more powerful clans to fight on their behalf, offering them high offices, court titles, rank promotions, and sometimes outright bribes in exchange for their muscle. In spite of its present and future weakness, the Ashikaga Bakufu would not be fully eliminated until 1573, nearly a hundred years after the close of the Onin War. Part of the reason for its sheer longevity can probably be ascribed to the inertia of tradition, 
always a potent force in Japanese politics. But there are a few other factors at play here as well. While the shogunate was no longer a source of direct authority for most of the nation, clever daimyo could sometimes win official recognition for whatever conflicts they were pursuing and to use the shogun's stamp of approval to bolster their troops and demoralize their enemies. When candidates for shogun engaged in succession disputes, ambitious samurai might extract promises of non-interference and even tax relief in exchange for their support of the winning candidate. The age which was to come after the Onin War was extremely different from the era that came before it. Navigating these uncharted waters would not be simple or straightforward. The clans of Kanto, Tohoku, Chubu, Shikoku, Kyushu, and even Kansai would need to adapt to a new world if they hoped to survive. Economics would play an outsized role in the struggles to come. As Shugo Daimyo evolved into leaders of independent regional polities, establishing trade networks and access to credit would become increasingly important. Although Ashikaga Yoshimitsu was long gone by the time the Onin War ended, the economic systems which he had fostered would long outlive the decline of the already decrepit Muromachi Bakufu. This is the final regular episode of this season, but there are three more bonus episodes to come and the first will be published next Monday. Next time, I will read the entirety of the Kemmu Shikimoku, which was the legal code promulgated by Ashikaga Takauji, as well as selections from Kitabatake Chikafusa's imperial history, the Jinno Shotoki. Until then, thank you for listening. If you would like access to exclusive bonus episodes, as well as ad-free versions of the regular episodes, please consider supporting this podcast at patreon.com slash ahistoryofjapan.